0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Infected, Book 1 of the Infected Trilogy, written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/infected. Chapter 15. One man's home. Coming home to apartment B203 always generated mixed feelings. The place wasn't much. One meaningless apartment and a massive cluster of identical buildings. Windywood was the kind of complex where even flawless directions would have people guessing. There were enough buildings to necessitate a little network of roads with smarmy names like Evergreen Drive, Shady Lane, and Poplar Street. After one or two wrong turns... The plain-looking, three-story, 12-unit complexes were all you could see. His building was only two down from the complex entrance, right across the street from the Washtenaw Party Store. Made things quite convenient. Meyer's Grocery Store was only a couple of miles away. He hit that for the big grocery runs. For everything else, the party store did the trick. It was a low-rent part of town, and the party store wasn't exactly a high-class operation. There was always some welfare reject on the payphone just outside the door, working a deal, or having a far too loud argument with a significant other. Perry didn't have jack squat to eat at home. The party store had a great little deli, so he stopped for a ham sandwich with Texas mustard and grabbed a six-pack of Newcastle beer. Sure enough, some chick was screaming into the phone. She held the receiver in one hand, a well-bundled baby in the other. Perry tried to ignore her as he walked in and tried to ignore her again as he walked out. But the girl was so loud. He didn't feel any sympathy for her. If he could rise above his background and upbringing, anyone could. People who lived that way wanted to live that way. He pulled into the apartment complex and into his carport, which was less than an eighth of a mile from the entrance. The girl bothered him. If he'd made it to the NFL, he'd live in a big house somewhere, far from the rabble of Ypsilanti. He couldn't shake the feeling that he was a failure. He should have more than this. The apartment was nice in its way, and he hated to feel ungrateful for the things that he had, but there was no denying the place was low rent. Seven years ago, no one thought he'd wind up in anything less than a mansion. Scary Perry Dossie, then a sophomore at the University of Michigan, had been named All-Big Ten linebacker along with senior Corey Kripowitz of Ohio State. Corey went in the first round to Chicago. He pulled down $2.1 million a year, not counting the $12 million signing bonus. It was a far cry from Perry's meager tech support salary. But Kripowitz hadn't been as good as Perry, and all the country knew it. Perry had been a monster, the kind of defensive player who could dominate a game with his sheer ferocity. The press had tagged him with several nicknames, Beast, Cromag, and Fang among them. But of course, ESPN's Chris Berman always seemed to have the last word on nicknames, and the first time he'd used the scary tag, it stuck. My, but how a cheap-ass cut block could change things. The knee injury had been awful, a complete blowout damaging the ACL, the medial collateral, every friggin' ligament in the area. It even caused bone damage, fracturing the fibula and chipping his patella. A year's worth of reconstructive surgeries and rehabilitation didn't bring him back to full speed. Fact was, he just couldn't cut it anymore. Where he'd once raged across the football field, inflicting his savage authority on anyone foolish enough to cross his path, now he could do little better than hobble along, chasing running backs he could never catch, taking hits from blockers he could never avoid. Without the release provided by football's physical play, Perry's violent streak threatened to eat him up from the inside. Thank God for Bill, who'd helped him adjust. Bill had been there for the next two years, acting as Perry's conscience, making him aware of his ever-present temper. Perry yanked up the Ford's parking brake and hopped out. He was Michigan-born and bred, and he loved the cold months, but winter made the complex look desolate, barren, and hopeless. Everything seemed pale gray and lifeless, as if some fairy-tale force had sucked the color from the landscape. He put his hand in his pocket. The crinkly white Walgreens bag was still there. The itching was just too intense. He'd stopped at the drugstore just a few blocks from his apartment complex and bought a tube of cord aid. It was silly to feel like he'd given in, like he was weak just for buying a tube of anti-itch medicine, but he felt that way regardless. He wondered what priceless piece of wisdom his father would have had regarding the medicine. Probably something along the lines of, You can't tough it out from rash? Jesus, boy, you piss me off. Somebody's going to have to teach you some discipline. He'd have followed up that comment with a belt, or a backhand, or his fist. Dear old Dad, humanitarian and all-around great guy. Perry shook the thoughts away. Dad was long dead, the victim of well-deserved cancer. Perry didn't need to concern himself with that man anymore. Sliding over the parking lot snow, that thin film that no shovel could seem to finish off, he reached the apartment building's dented green front door and keyed in. He grabbed his mail mostly junk mail and coupons, then trudged up the two flights to his apartment. Walking up the steps dragged his jeans against the welts on his leg, amplifying the itching. It was as if someone had jammed a burning coal in his skin. He forced himself to ignore it, to show at least a modicum of discipline as he unlocked the door to his apartment. The layout was simple. Facing out the door into the hall, the kitchen nook was to his left and the living room was to his right. Just past the kitchen nook was the dining area. The spot was tiny to begin with. Cluttered by both the computer desk that held his Macintosh and a small round table with four chairs, the place barely had enough room to maneuver. The living room was decent size, comfortable and sparsely furnished with his big old couch, in front of which sat a hand-me-down coffee table, an end table with a lamp tucked up against the couch, a small recliner, too small for Perry's body, was the habitual territory for Bill on football Sundays. Directly across from the couch and to the right of the door was the entertainment center, with a 32-inch flat screen and a Panasonic stereo system, the only expensive items Perry owned. No need for a landline phone. Work provided his cell, and cable modem provided his internet connection. There were no plants and few decorations. On the wall above the entertainment center, however, were Perry's numerous football accolades. A shelf-held trophies for his high school MVP awards and his treasured Gator Bowl MVP trophy from his freshman year. Plaques dotted the walls. Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, Detroit Free Press Mr. Football Award from his senior year in high school, a dozen others. Two items hung side by side, obviously commanding a place of honor among the awards. The first was something he'd been stunned to see, even when he knew it was coming, something that had marked a turning point in his life his acceptance letter from the University of Michigan. The other item he both loved and hated, his snarling, sweat-streaked, helmet-clad face on the cover of Sports Illustrated. In the picture, he was tackling Ohio State's Jervis McClatchy, who was completely wrapped up in Perry's bulging, dirt- and grass-covered arms. The cover read, So good, it's scary. Perry Dossie and the Wolverine D lead Michigan to the Rose Bowl. He loved the cover for obvious reasons. What athlete doesn't dream of making the cover of SI? He hated it because, like many football players, he was superstitious. The cover of SI was suspected by many to carry a curse. If you're an unbeatable team and you make the cover, you're going to lose the next game. Or, if you're the best linebacker in a decade and you make the cover, your career will soon be over. Part of him couldn't shake the stupid feeling that if he hadn't made that cover, he'd still be playing football. The place was small and admittedly a bit ghetto, but it was a veritable luxury condo compared to his childhood home. He treasured his privacy. It was a little lonely at times, but he could also do anything he wanted any time he wanted. No one to track his schedule. No one to care if he brought home some girl he met at the bar. No one to bitch if he left his dirty socks on the kitchen table. No one to scream at him for reasons unknown. Sure, it wasn't the mansion he should have had, It wasn't the abode of an NFL star, but it was his. At least he'd found a job in Ann Arbor, home of his alma mater. He'd fallen in love with the town during college. Hailing from a small town like Sheboygan, he distrusted cities, felt uncomfortable in some sprawling metropolis like Chicago or New York. At the same time, however, he was the proverbial farm boy who'd seen the bright lights of the bigger world, and he couldn't go back to small town life, which seemed devoid of culture and fun by comparison. Ann Arbor was a college town of 110,000 that retained a cozy, small-town warmth, giving him the best of both worlds. He tossed his keys and cell phone onto the kitchen table, threw his briefcase and heavy coat on the beat-up old couch, pulled the Walgreens bag from his pocket, and headed for the bathroom. The rashes felt like seven searing electrodes grafted to his skin and connected to a 10,000-watt current. He'd deal with the rashes, but first thing first... That zit thing above his eyebrow had to go. He set the bag down, opened the medicine cabinet, and pulled out tweezers. He gave them a habitual flick, hearing them hum like a tuning fork, then leaned into the mirror. The weird zit thing was still there, of course, and it still hurt. He'd seen Bill pop a zit once. The process took like twenty minutes. Bill was methodical and a bit of a pussy, so that was fine. Perry had a higher tolerance for pain and a lower tolerance for patience. He took one deep breath, fixed the tweezers on the small, gnarled red bump, and yanked. The chunk tore free. The pain came hot and sweet. Blood trickled down his face. He took another deep breath as he grabbed a wad of toilet paper and pressed it to the new wound. He held up the tweezers with his free hand, just a small dot of flesh. But in the middle there, Was that a hair? It wasn't black at all. It was blue. A deep, dark, iridescent blue. Friggin' weird. He ran the tweezers under hot water, washing away the odd zit. He grabbed the band-aids from the cabinet. Only six left. He ripped the paper off one and put it over the small, bloody spot where the zit thing had just been. That had been the easy part. Any pansy could deal with pain. But itching... That was a different story. Perry dropped his pants and plopped down on the toilet. He pulled the cordade from the white bag. Squirting a healthy portion into his hand, he plastered the goo on the yellowish welt atop his left thigh. He immediately regretted it. The direct contact made the welt rage with intense itching pain, a blowtorch burning white-hot as if his skin had melted away in glowing, molten drips. He scooted on the seat and nearly cried out, Controlling himself after only a second or two, he took a long, slow breath and forced himself to relax. Almost as soon as the pain started, it died down, then seemed to subside completely. Smiling at the small victory, Perry gently worked the salve into the welt and the surrounding skin. He almost laughed with relief. Using far more caution, he worked the cordade into the other welts. When he finished, all seven of them fell quiet. The Magnificent Seven, Perry mumbled. You aren't so magnificent now, are you? With all seven itches battled into submission, he felt giddy. He felt like howling with joy. But more than anything else, he felt tired. The maddening itches created constant stress. With that stress suddenly gone, he felt like a schooner with the wind dying out of its sails. Perry stripped out of all but his underwear, left his clothes in the bathroom, and walked to the small bedroom. His queen-size bed left little space for a single dresser and a nightstand. Less than 18 inches separated the sides of the mattress from the wall. He practically fell into the comfortable old bed. He pulled the loose blankets around him, shivering as the cool cotton raised goosebumps on his skin. The blankets quickly warmed, and at 5.30 p.m., he was sound asleep, a small smile still tickling his face.
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
2: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.
0: Chapter 16, Veins Margaret walked, trying to stretch her muscles but there wasn't much room in the claustrophobic BSL-4 tent. She wandered over to Amos, who was transfixed by a slide set under a high-powered microscope.
3: What have you got on that thorn? Still doing a few tests. I found another structure that you should take a look at and make it quick. It's decomposing as we speak.
0: He stood, letting her peer into the microscope. The highly magnified image looked to be a deflated capillary, a normal vein. But it wasn't all normal. Part of it looked damaged. From that area ran a grayish-black tubule. The tubule ended with a decomposing area showing the ubiquitous rot so common in all the victims. Amos was right. She could see the tissue dissolving right before her eyes. She focused her attention away from the rapid rot spot and back on the tubule.
3: What the hell is that thing? I love your subtle use of scientific terminology, Margaret. That appears to be a siphon of some sort. A siphon? You mean this was tapping into Brubaker's bloodstream, like a mosquito? No, not like a mosquito, not at all. A mosquito merely inserts its proboscis into the skin and draws out blood. What you're looking at is another level entirely. That siphon draws blood from the circulatory system, but it's permanently attached. There's no visible means for opening or closing the siphon. That means there are probably matching siphons that return blood to the circulatory system. Otherwise, the growth would fill up with blood and burst. So, if it returns the blood to the circulatory system, It's not feeding directly on the blood? No, not directly, but it's definitely capitalizing on the host's bodily functions. The growth obviously draws oxygen and possibly nutrients from the bloodstream. That must be how it grows. It may also feed directly on the host, but I doubt that. That would entail a digestive process and a method for eliminating waste. Granted, the growths we've seen have been completely decomposed, so we can't confirm or deny the existence of a digestive tract. But from what we've got here, I doubt there is one. Why would something evolve a complicated digestive system when there's no apparent need? The blood would supply the growth with all sustenance. So it's not just a massive cancerous tissue. It's a full-blown parasite. Well, we don't know that it's really living in the usual sense. If it's a growth, it's just that, a growth. Whereas a parasite is a separate organism. Remember, the lab results didn't show any tissue other than Brubaker's. That and the huge amounts of cellulase. But it does appear to be using those bodily functions to stay alive. So at least for now, I'd have to agree with you and define it as a parasite.
0: Margaret noticed a touch of astonishment in his voice. He was really beginning to admire the strange parasite. She stood. Amos bent back to the microscope.
3: This is a revolutionary development, Margaret. Don't you see that? Think of the lowly tapeworm. It doesn't have a digestive system. It doesn't need one, because it lives in the host's intestine. The host digests food so the tapeworm doesn't have to. It merely absorbs the nutrients surrounding it. Where do those nutrients go if the tapeworm doesn't get them? They go into the bloodstream. Blood carries those nutrients, along with oxygen, to the body's various tissues and then takes out waste materials and gases. And by tapping into the bloodstream, the triangle parasites get food and oxygen. They don't need to eat or breathe. That's how it appears. Quite astonishing, isn't it? You're the parasitologist. If this keeps up, you'll be in charge and I'll be the lackey.
0: Amos laughed. Margaret hated him at that moment over 36 hours into their marathon session, with little more than 20-minute catnaps to pace them. And he still didn't seem tired.
3: Are you kidding me? I'm a total chicken shit, and you know it. First sign of danger, physical or emotional, I run for the hills. My wife actually has my balls in a jar back at the house. She's taller than me. She puts them up on a shelf where I can't reach them.
0: Margaret laughed. Amos was famously open about who ran his household.
3: I'm fine where I'm at. I rather like being the lackey of being in charge means having to deal with Dew Phillips and Murray Longworth. But if I do wind up calling the shots, just remember, I like my coffee black.
0: They sat in silence for a moment, tired brains processing the strange information that seemed to provide no real
3: answers. This can't stay a secret forever. Off the top of my head, I can name three experts who should be here right now. Murray's secrecy policy is asinine. But he's got a point, you have to admit. We can have the story out, not yet. We'll have anyone with a rash, a bug bite, or even dry skin flooding the hospitals. It's going to make it very difficult to find someone who's actually infected, especially as we have no idea what the early stages of this infection look like. If the story got out now, we'd have to look at millions of people. Hopefully we can at least come up with some kind of screening process or test for infection before the story breaks. I understand the precarious nature of the situation. I just think that Murray's taken us too far. It's one thing to keep a lid on something, it's quite another to be completely understaffed. What the hell happens if a hundred Martin Brubaker suddenly pop up and no one is prepared for it, let alone warned it could happen? You think a bomb is a terror weapon? It's nothing compared to hundreds of Americans going psycho on each other. What happens if we keep this a secret until it's too late to do anything about it?
0: He walked back to his station, leaving Margaret to stare at the half-body. The constant decomposition had partially relaxed Brubaker's tail in hand, where it had once stood straight up and now hung at 45 degrees, halfway to the tabletop. His blackening, liquefying body didn't have much time left. Margaret wondered about Amos' comment. If there was some rogue lab with the technology to genetically engineer a parasite that could alter human behavior, wasn't it already too late? Chapter 17 Cat Scratch Fever Perry awoke with a scream. His collarbone raged with pain, like he dragged a razor blade across the thin skin atop the bone, peeling back flesh like a cheese grater rubbed across some cheddar. The fingers of his right hand felt cold, wet, and sticky. A sunrise beam of light pierced his half drawn curtains, lighting up the window frost crystallized on the pane. His room filled with the hazy glow of a winter morning. In the dim light, Perry stared at his hands. They looked to be covered with chocolate syrup, thick and tacky brown. He fumbled with the lamp in his nightstand. The bulb's glow lit up the room and his hands. It wasn't chocolate syrup. It was blood. Trickles of dried blood and finger smears of the same streaked his left pectoral, clotting in his thin, blonde chest hair. He'd torn the skin during the night, digging into the flesh with his fingernails, which were caked with blood and bits of dried skin. Perry looked down at his body. Blood smudges, some wet, some tacky, and some completely dry, covered his left thigh. With a sudden start of horror, he saw bomb-run droplets of blood on his underwear. Pulling the waistband out, he looked down. A sigh of relief. No blood on his testicles. He'd torn into himself during the night, ripping away at the itches with an abandon that didn't exist during waking hours. How had he not woken up? Sleeping like the dead was an understatement, and despite more than thirteen hours of sleep, he still felt tired. Tired and hungry. Perry stared at himself in the mirror. Pale skin, nearly white, smeared with streaks of his own blood dried to a reddish black, as if he were the canvas for a child's finger painting, or perhaps some ancient shaman bedecked for a tribal ritual. The rashes had grown in the night. Each was now the size of a silver dollar pancake and had taken on a coppery color. Perry cranked his neck, trying to use the mirror to see the blemishes on his back and ass. They looked okay, which was to say he hadn't scratched them raw during the night. But in truth, they looked anything but okay. Not knowing what else to do, Perry took a quick shower to wash off the dried blood. The situation was fucked up, obviously, but there was little he could do about it now. Besides, he had to be at work in a few hours. Maybe after work, he'd actually break down and make a doctor's appointment. Perry scrubbed up, then applied the rest of the cord aid, being very careful with the raw wounds on his leg and collarbone. He applied band-aids to both areas, then dressed and made himself a whopping breakfast. His stomach groaned with a ravenous hunger, more intense than his normal morning cravings. He made five scrambled eggs, eight pieces of toast, and washed everything down with two big glasses of milk. Overall, the rashes felt fine, although they looked worse than ever. If they didn't itch anymore, they couldn't be that big of a deal. Perry felt certain the rashes would subside by day's end, or at least be on their way out. Confident his body could handle the problem, he gathered up his battered briefcase and headed to work. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy, by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment.
2: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut.